Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday. Welcome to KUOW's Week in Review. I'm your host, Bill Radke. What was that Mariner executive really apologizing for? We've got lots to talk about this week. That's coming up a little bit later. We gather some of our favorite local journalists and discuss what's gone by this week. We have GeekWire contributing editor Mike Lewis with us. Hi, Mike. Hello, Bill. Also, South Seattle Emerald writer and reporter. Hi, Lauren Bray. Great to be back. Good to have you back. And KUOW's own growth and development reporter. Welcome back, Joshua McNichols. Hey there. You can see us, you can hear the show, but you can also see it because we're on YouTube and Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio. Uh, let's get started with our first topic this week. There's this uh, major trial started in Tacoma this week. It's the biggest prosecution of police officers for an on-duty death in almost a century uh, here. It's the first trial since voters passed a law that makes it easier to hold officers liable for using deadly force. Uh, this is the case of Manny Ellis. Um, Three Tacoma officers are accused of first-degree manslaughter. Two of those three are also charged with second-degree murder. This man, Manny Ellis, was walking home in 2020, March of 2020. Uh, The cops say he attacked their patrol car. That is disputed. There's no video of that part of the incident. And, uh, And the officers tackled him, restrained him, tied him up, tased him. And, and Manny Ellis died. There's more to say about what happened, but I want to sort of open it to to the group. What has struck you? Lauren, do you want to begin? What has struck you about the, the, the prosecution's arguments, the defense's arguments in this case? Yeah, so I think the, the thing that's most heartbreaking to me, obviously, is the, the tragedy, the fact that this man has died um, at the hands of police. And it's, it's unfortunate to have to watch defense continuously justify it. But, you know, it's a trial, so it is what it is. But I think um, the defense is essentially saying that um, he did not die of what the medical examiner has identified his death as, which is oxygen deprivation. Mm -hmm. Um, They're essentially saying that um, since methamphetamine was found in his system, that that might more likely have uh, something to do with him passing away. Um, however, I, I think there's something that I always like to look at when I'm because I, I I interact with true crime cases. So I always like to wonder if this person was not involved in the incident, would this person have walked away with their life? And I believe that many Ellis would have walked away with his life if he did not interact with police that day or if police did not interact with him that day. So um, that, to me, there there has to be something said there about when police interact with the public, why are, are people dying as a result of that and, and what's going on there with that? Yeah. I've been, I've been looking a little bit into, you know, reading a little bit about this case and reading about spit hoods, you know, which police sometimes put on people when they feel like they might get spat on. Um, you know, it, it feels like – and it strikes – that was – cited as one of the things that may have contributed to the death in this case because he was he was struggling with the ability to breathe and he said i can't breathe right mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. so 
it, you know, it, it's supposed to be a fairly safe technique, the use of these spit hoods. But it stri- there was one other death in another case in Rochester, New York. Uh, another person died in a spit hood. And it just strikes me that even things that may be considered tools of, you know, non-lethal force or de-escalation, um, you know, Police encounters are dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it strikes me that we need a broad definition of de-escalation that includes recognition that even, you know, when when you think you're being non-lethal, you mm-hmm. know, it, it can lead to someone's death. And why was the spit hood, you know, put on him? I think it was because he was bleeding and, and spitting because they had punched him so many times, mm-hmm. you know. I think spit hoods are typically used to keep people from biting officers. Um, there's been a lot of debate with, with that, whether or not he was intentionally using his teeth as a weapon. But um, the spit hood, to me, seems like uh, it's typically unnecessary or that it is somewhat can be lethal because um, I was looking at this article that the New York Times had posted um few months after Ellis had died, uh, and it, they didn't mention his death or anything at all, but they had talked about how the NYPD doesn't even use spit hoods. They don't even trust their officers with it. Um, and they only started issuing it to emergency service officers uh, during the pandemic, uh, which I would guess is to keep transmission down when you're interacting with people that are in crisis. So, I mean, if the NYPD, which is one of the most historically deadly police departments, doesn't even use it, I, I think it's something to say there. Um, and also just the way that spit hoods have been implemented in the past. Like there was a 12-year-old boy um, in Sacramento where I grew up who had a spit hood placed on him. And the police had to end up paying $100,000 to the family because they sued for pain and suffering because they claimed that the boy had been traumatized. So why are we using these? What are they for, really? Yeah, I, I think that's a great point. And, and in fact, they're not the New York NYPD isn't the only law enforcement uh, agency that doesn't use them as well. There's quite a few others because they don't feel like they can really control how they are actually deployed by officers. Many, including Seattle, they're used by emergency crews, but they're not actually used very often. I don't know if the Seattle Police Department has a policy, but the, every time I've seen it applied twice to people. And in both cases, it was emergency services that did it, and it wasn't the police department that did it. The other thing that strikes me uh, about this this trial so far, and it's hard not to pay a lot of attention to it because it's such an important uh, turn of events in Washington State, is um, many else's sister. Um, it's Monet Carter Mixon. It was her. It was her. She's the one who gathered the video mm-hmm. that is actually going to be instrumental i think in this case because that is where you find out the discrepancy between this gap right what the defense says what the what the prosecution says that's a true in every single trial but in this particular case there's actually video evidence that seems to at this particular point more refute the police reports Mm -hmm. uh, than it does what the actual testimony has been from witnesses or people nearby the thing that strikes me is where we are now in society regarding, let's just use narrowly with police reform, has so much to do with camera phones, um, the, the cameras, doorbell cameras, things like this. How much has changed in our perception and what we believe to be true now that we have video evidence mm-hmm. of these sort of things? I think it is the single most important thing that has happened regarding 
law enforcement reform in the United States, perhaps worldwide, I don't know, I only track the United States, is the just the cell phone with a camera in it. Because I, it I has haven't seen everything. evidence yet that that the police withheld video or like what I, I, I this is in, an interesting question. What how much effort are the police expected and required to go to to gather mm-hmm. any video that might have been, you know, someone a, a delivery person who happened who happened on the scene, a, a a doorbell camera. If I might interject there, Bill, I I think it it raises an interesting point to think about how the police are responsible for investigating a murder and who actually know? did the gathering here. Right? Exactly. So if if we're looking at the police in this case would have had to have worked against themselves because it is police officers who are on trial and they would have been gathering evidence against other police officers. So it, it, it it's not a surprise to me that most of the footage that we have has been pulled by Manny Ellis' sister, as Mike has mentioned. And I believe you had also talked uh, prior about how the doorbell um, footage that was um, one of the first um footages that they had pulled yep. in regards to the case like he had early on been talking about how he could not breathe and asking for help so if one of the earliest pieces of footage that we have from the entire incident shows him or audibly hears him saying that he cannot breathe you know he he had been in a place of danger you know long before so I, I don't know. I just think it, it's it says a lot about how far these things go and to what extent are police using excessive force? How how much longer do they have to sit on someone's back? Yeah, I, this it was not I did hear in this trial and it's not the first time I've heard an officer say that they uh, essentially were saying they didn't believe they don't always believe people who they're interacting with when they say they can't breathe. Yeah, he said, shut up. He said, you can talk to me, you can breathe. You can breathe, right. Yeah. Right. And which which gets at uh, just maybe one one more observation before we leave this is is the question of de-escalation. The... And I'm, you know, I'm not not in, in these people's heads, but it seems like over and over there's this question of power... A question of uh, threat, mm-hmm. a question of even morality. Who's the hero and who's the villain? You know, and uh, I, I can we not expect anything? You know, you opened this, Lauren, by talking about did somebody have to die that night? Yeah, you know, and it seems like over and over again. I guess I ask myself that same question: Did somebody really? Did, did that? Did someone need to die? Because how much would it have been for officers to be like, okay, we'll leave you alone now? You know, there's a point that had to have been proven there. You know, they had to have ended up on, on top. And the and I, this is the one last thing that I'll say before I leave this, but I think what's really dangerous about what the defense has been saying about um, Ellis was, um, I believe one of the attorneys said that he had superhuman strength. And there's just this issue that I feel when we talk about black bodies and black people in these incidences, they're either subhuman or they're superhuman. And I'll quote my mom because she said that she was the one that brought up the article to me. But um, black people were human, you know, and I think that there's a fear there that a lot of officers have when they see a black man, especially a black man. There's a 
threat that that poses. And we need to talk about a lot of the racism and the internalized bias that we have about black people and what that makes us feel when we see black people. Well, let's pause there. This trial is going to go on. You know, we're going to learn much more. And, and you know, and by the way, I'm not even, I'm not even, I'm not making a legal argument uh, when I, when I make this observation about de-escalation and can we do better? You know, what the testimony and, and the question of accountability, uh, all that will, will, will come out and be debated. This, um, I think we're going to hear from Manny Ellis's mother on Monday, and this trial is going to go on you know, I, w- I think the rest of this year, um, a trial in Tacoma of three police officers there uh, that we'll continue to follow. You're listening to Week in Review on KUOW. We're here with Lauren Bray and Mike Lewis and Joshua McNichols. We're going to take a short break. And uh, Joshua is our growth and development reporter here at KUOW. And it's such a, you know, these are so, such important issues. And, and Joshua goes out and brings back stories of what's happening in our region. We're going to hear a couple of them for you when we come right back. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at paxi.org. Support comes from the Discovery Inn on Washington's San Juan Island, an island getaway that's a ferry ride away, now taking reservations for summer and fall. More information and booking available at discoveryinn.com. You're with Week in Review on KUOW. I'm Bill Radke, and we've got Lauren Bray here from South Seattle Emerald. Uh, we've got Mike Lewis joining us, a GeekWire's contributing editor, and KUOW's growth and development reporter Joshua McNichols is here. Joshua, Microsoft has been renovating its campus in Redmond for, for, for a long time, and it's, it's nearing the end of the project. You toured the campus this week. I want to know, first of all, why should us non-Microsoft employees care about this? Why is this a regionally important project? Yeah. Well, you know, Microsoft's campus is kind of like a microcosm of some of the issues that cities face as they transition away from cars and respond to trends like remote work and climate change. And because Microsoft has more money, it can be a proving ground for some new ideas. Mm -hmm. For example, they built this big geothermal plant. They put miles and miles of pipes underground filled with circulating water. And like a heat pump, they use the Earth's naturally stable temperature to heat and cool buildings. Here's Katie Ross. She's the director of Microsoft's carbon reduction strategy. And geothermal technology isn't necessarily a new concept, right? The Romans were using some system of heating and cooling water via, you know, deep underground systems. This is at a slightly larger scale than we saw then and certainly is the largest scale that we have ever done. So, you know, that's that's cool. It's cool to see. They got these big colorful tanks out there where you can see the water's in there. And but but, you know. I'd like to contrast them just a little bit with Amazon here. You know, Amazon has these very urban campuses, right? Right. They they built them in city centers. 
close to public transportation and housing. And Microsoft's campus is suburban. It's spread out. It's expensive to heat and cool that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and they are trying to change things. You know, an, an urban campus is more uh, efficient in a lot of ways. You know, light rail is going to help them a lot in this transition um, because there's going to be, you know, coming up soon, 6,000 people a day riding that line there. Next year, right? Yeah. And then once it connects to Seattle, between 40 and 50,000 people a and and there's a there's a big new beautiful bridge leading from the light rail station the Redmond Technology Station to Microsoft's campus you know and they they've got they're giving out free orca cards for people and they they have this sort of shuttle service around the campus that'll sort of you know it's like an uber for Microsoft you know that'll lead you around to these different bur- buildings okay and then part of the new campus it's like a it, it's a more european layout it's got like a plaza in the center and there's these buildings around it and cafes everywhere you know but it, it sounds so utopian. I hear a butt coming. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it is hard, just like in cities, it's hard to shift a car commuting culture. You know, they've still got these giant garages everywhere around the campus. Are they building new parking garages or just they the, are really building new parking garages? So uh-huh. you've you sort of got this like pedestrian oriented Microsoft and then you go just like half a, a block away and there's like a you know five or six lane road entering and exiting the East Campus there. So, um, And then when I visited, you know, this week, the campus still felt a little bit like a ghost town. You know, the cafes were busy at lunchtime, but, um, you know, it, it, it makes me wonder if there are other strategies similar to those used in cities that could help. You know, could Microsoft um, – they, they slowed down some of their office buildings there. Could they – could they build some housing instead? You know, kind of like downtowns are trying to do to bring in more residents to add more economic diversity to downtown. Build housing on their campus? Yeah. Yeah, right. Any other reaction to this? I think the housing on the campus would be such a great idea. It would really be great for work-life balance. <laughs> a little bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I want to live right where I worked, yeah. um, having done it once before. Or there's, or there's work from home. I think one of the things, I mean, I think Microsoft has done a lot of stuff regarding um, trying to be at least as, you know, sustainable as it can, as carbon neutral as it can. I mean, it, it's been a really good place as far as getting people Orca cards and getting and giving people, I know as a person who cycled here today and does a lot of cycling, they provide showers, lockers. They are very good about cycle commuting as well. So, I mean, I think they do all of the things that a modern company does they did put the and that was a Bill Gates decision from way back. They did put the campus way out in Redmond, and the city is kind of built around the campus now. I mean, the city has kind of come to the campus rather than the campus campus come into the city. Mm-hmm. But I would say that one of the things that Microsoft is doing kind of quietly that isn't getting a lot of attention is it's very very involved in a group called the East Side Roundtable, and the East Side Roundtable is this group of city officials and developers. Uh, Bellevue city officials in particular, but all the other cities, Kirkland and other places as well, people who understand um, permitting issues. And they've been quietly trying to push Bellevue into rewriting its zoning to get rid of Because if you want to talk to a place that is single family zoned almost exclusively, Mm. talk about Bellevue. I mean, it does have on the transit corridors, it does allow for density, but generally speaking, it doesn't have a whole lot. And this has been the quiet battle that Microsoft has really been funding to try and get the city to start changing its zoning in a dramatic way, not in a, you know, 2,000 units kind of way, but in a substantial way, that same way that Seattle's under pressure to do the same. And I think when Microsoft doing that is, to me, almost more important than 
worrying about another parking garage. Uh, I think that that's the thing that's really going to, because then they're going to have this density of housing that's going to make mass transit far more efficient than it is now. I mean, if you're in Issaquah, your mass transit options to get to Redmond are pretty limited, right? Mm. But if they allow for more sustainable, cheaper housing nearer to campus, and you're right there in Bellevue, and you're very close to a light rail line, which is going to be opening soon, as we talked about, I think that's a, I think that's a win. And I think that that should probably go toward this large – I'm not here to – I'm not a Microsoft spokesperson. I'm not here to defend Microsoft. But I am going to say that I think even that effort should go toward, is Microsoft doing enough to be sustainable? Yeah. And there's this big question of like, how well are we utilizing the you know, investments we've made in this light rail system in terms of providing density of housing around stations? Right around it. And that's, and that's kind of the – Nissan has done a bit to sort of change the, the near corridor zoning. And Seattle has as well along the light rail, our one light rail line at this point. Seattle's done a decent job of, of changing the zoning within like, I don't know, five blocks of that all the way along. Eastside is a little farther behind, but it's doing that. And I think I completely agree with you. That's the type of thing that's really going to start moving the bar fo- bar dramatically from yeah. where it is now. And that's one of the discussions that's going to happen more in the state legislature next year. I mean, they got they got some changes to single-family zoning passed, so Bellevue will have to that's incorporate true. more density into single-family zoning areas. Um, but but th- they kind of left on the table this issue of you know dramatically increasing zone, zoning capacity right around light rail stations. Yeah, and it, it's funny because that's really where they need to go with it. Before we move to, uh, uh, there's another story I want to hear uh, f- hear about um, from you, Joshua. But I just wanted to to make room for something that that you had said to me, Lauren. Basically, questioning how sustainable can any of this really be? Yeah, I mean, they have about like 16 million metric tons of carbon per year that they emit. So all these projects are going to create more. But I definitely do agree with some of what Mike has suggested. Um, I think. Me personally, campus housing might be the best just because I'm tired of people from Microsoft making traffic. But <laughs> but that's just me. Um, yeah, I also just think that like the train idea is probably just going to be the most sustainable all around for a lot of the issues that I think that we see in Seattle with terms of uh, even public safety. You know, a lot of a lot of problems, I think, could be solved if we really invested into a more in-depth transportation system. So I'm never going to disagree with that. <laughs> well, speaking of safety in our transportation system, uh, Joshua, as long as we're still driving, and this is why Microsoft is still building parking garages, we're going to have intersections, some dangerous intersections. And you're reporting on how artificial intelligence may or may not help. That's right. I mean, uh, there's this idea. Basically, the Seattle traffic engineers, you know, with the Seattle Department of Transportation, they got some funding from the federal government to try out this idea. And at a couple intersections in the Rainier Valley, they're going to install basically artificial intelligence to watch the intersections and, you know, monitor. That's a pedestrian. That's a cyclist. That's a bike. I mean, that's a car. That's a train. And um, they they monitor near misses. So, you know, before they just had to look at police reports, which identified where crashes were. And right. The description. Oh, the, yeah, the crash was as this person was turning right or whatever. But these AI systems can monitor the whole intersection and all the near misses, which are, 
you know, many, many, many more times than there are actual crashes. Sure. And they develop a heat map. And on this map, they tell you exactly where in the intersection are the most dangerous points. And, you know, they, they can point to some general strategies that we already know work. Like if you oftentimes the pinch point is where pedestrians are crossing across the crosswalk, they get about a third of the way across and then somebody's trying to turn right. Mm-hmm. You know, you have a lot of near misses there. And we already know that giving pedestrians a sort of lead out into the intersection generally is more safe. But what yeah, engineers... meaning they can cross, but then there's a few seconds, and that's that's happening more and more. I'm seeing that in different intersections all over Seattle at this yeah. point. Yeah, it's great. cars can't go right away. But AI could help engineers decide where are the most strategic and places to roll out these kinds of improvements, and so. You know, since the federal government's paying for it, they're going to try it out. And if it works well, they'll expand it across the city. Uh, Two things. One, I don't I mean, I I think this is great. um, But given that I think the state is making a lot of or allowing municipalities to make virtually every right turn on red illegal anyway. I mean, that's where we're going. Right. So. So, so that's that's one example, and they're yeah. going to address that. But there are other things, too, you know, right. that they find out. But here's the thing that, that I think about the most, especially when we're applying you know, AI to this sort of a situation. I just wish there would be also a focus. Here I am going to be flying the ointment um, <laughs> yeah, on <clears throat> efforts with organic intelligence. And, and what I mean is why – do if you start looking at the police reports, and I've done some of this on on human on pedestrian car uh, accidents, mm-hmm. crashes they say crashes. right right mm-hmm. crashes. They rarely cite any pedestrian fault. And having watched and having had happen to me many times, and I spend seventy five percent of my time either on a bicycle on a motorcycle or walking, right? I'm, I'm, I am very sympathetic to folks who are on bicycles and who are pedestrians because I do it a ton. But I got to say, I've seen so many people with headphones and looking at their phones step out in intersections. And in two cases, I've seen people get hit. In both cases, they weren't injured badly, a little bit of scrape, scraped up. And in two cases on my bicycle, like literally had people step off right in front of me, particularly on Dexter where they tried to make things safer but people now step into the bike lane to get to the bus stop. And weirdly enough, it has increased that if you'd ask any cyclist, it is more dangerous to ride down Dexter now than it was prior. And this was supposed to be a safety improvement. So you're saying we need to replace human intelligence with artificial intelligence? I'm saying we need humans, to. Humans clearly are, are too dumb to keep themselves safe. I think we need to replace human intelligence with better human intelligence. Okay. And we need to do, uh, because it seems to me at some point, there is a component here. Like you cannot make it safe enough for a bunch of people to just pay attention when they are out there. And I think that there is a certain level of ownership that cyclists, and I'm a cyclist, avid cyclist, and I see cyclists doing dumb things all the time. And I see pedestrians, I'm a pedestrian every day of my life, and I see them doing dumb things as well. And I wish that at some point while we're going toward this goal zero, that one component in that is actual personal responsibility component. Because I get, I mean, I get very yeah, I just don't know how that. we're going to engineer that. But I, I want to hear if Lauren had any, also had a reaction to this. Um, I, I definitely do see what Mike is saying there. <laughs> I definitely think it's a case-by-case basis with some people just thinking that they're more indestructible than a car and that they might have a chance um, and just not paying attention. So I agree. But for me, the whole um, technology as a replacement system for sometimes 
what I feel might be long-term solutions. Because if you look at some places that they're installing uh, technology on, particularly in the South End, they like they need sidewalks first. Like some of these places on, on um, downtown and North End, like yes, they have sidewalks, but some places that are getting AI technology installed on the South End don't even have sidewalks first. That's an excellent point. So I think that that's like for me the biggest issue because when uh, and there's actually um, a new bill that's being proposed by uh, Councilmember Morales, and I actually need to. Re-up on, uh, read up on if they had voted on it or not. But basically she said that any sort of development on um, a road where there's no sidewalk on at least one side that they have to install a sidewalk. So they're, they're uh, proposing le- legislation to address that. But I think the biggest issue is some of the infrastructure problems that we have on these roads um, with people just feeling like they can just fly down and speed down and, and not have any sort of consequence because there's no sidewalk in the in the post the posted uh, speed limit is 25 miles per hour but if you have these long roads and then there's no crosswalk or not enough stop signs to stop people they're just going to fly by absolutely joshua any any final thoughts on ai in the intersection yeah well you know this this idea of personal responsibility it's interesting i, I used to be in architecture and there was this idea that like if you if you design you know uh, like like on a campus if you design sidewalks around the perimeter of a square and then everybody cuts diagonally across it right. is that a fault of you know is it irresponsible walkers or did you just fail to put in a diagonal sidewalk similarly with the you know cross Crosswalk and intersection evaluation. There was one case they found where, um, you know, over a 30-day period in the U District, you know, over 3,000 people were not using the crosswalk that was just a few feet away. They were walking, you know, <laughs> across the street. In a I've been spot. one of those 3,000 people. If it's the crosswalk <laughs> I'm thinking of, yeah. So I mean, there's a general philosophy in you know um, engineering that um, you need a, a system that accommodates for human imperfections. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Imperfections. (laughs) Right, right. Human behavior. Uh, Okay, so we'll see. So when do these, uh, are they up yet? When are we going to get data from these? Very soon they're going to deploy at these, you know, two intersections. They'll figure out how they work and then employ them more widely. Your your point about sidewalks and infrastructure is really important too, though. Um, You know, that's one reason I always say the federal government's paying for it. You know, if you had to, if you had a certain amount of money to spend, maybe you'd, if, if it was just your own money, maybe you'd spend it on sidewalks first. Yeah. These are going in, these cameras are going in near the light rail stations at Columbia City and Othello. That's right. right. And they can, and you know. Which has been a danger zone, right. Which has been a danger zone. And they, they don't, they don't get tired. They're, 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 they're filming 24 seven and they can supposedly distinguish between you know, a car and a person and a and a yeah. Oh, it is important to note they can't zoom in enough to tell y- your face, and they also don't um, be you know to try to avoid systemic bias, which is a problem with AI systems. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not breaking down what kind of a person you are or what you you know they're into subgroups. It's just you're either a pedestrian or a cyclist or a car. So huh. and the anonymity of people is preserved. So okay. All right, we'll watch and learn. Um, that's our uh, growth and development reporter, Joshua McNichols. The McNichols there. We've got GeekWire's Mike Lewis, South Seattle Emeralds Lauren Bray. We're going to take a short break and tell you some more stuff that happened this week and the the 
the guts, the chutzpah of this person to say what he did to the sports fans of Seattle. Unbelievable. We'll be right back. This is KUOW's Week in Review. We're on YouTube and Facebook streaming if you want to search KUOW Public Radio. We've gone in depth on a few topics, a few events and happenings this week. Let me just run down in case you haven't been glued to the news. A few other things that went on, and panelists, you're free to comment if you like or not, but... uh, uh, the outdoor clothing maker Filson, I saw, you know, they've been around for more than a century here in Seattle. They're shrinking. They've been shrinking their production over the years, but now they're outsourcing up to two thirds of what's left to an outside vendor. And it's just, you know, we're an expensive place to manufacture. Yeah, they used to manufacture in Soto and then they moved their manufacturing to Kent. Yep. Uh, it sounds like this is just a further sort of. Well, but the question I have, though, is what they're moving out of Seattle, you know where they're moving it, right? That surprised me as well. I was they're moving it to Los Angeles, and I'm not Los sure where I, how I understand how that's necessarily— I had the exact same yeah. reaction. It, yeah. Isn't that where American Apparel was making their stuff? Right? Oh, it was right, for a while, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, you, you know who's been sold is Mac and Jack's Brewing, and— uh, Mike, you're a bar owner. Did you did you know about the Mac and Jack sale? Yeah, the funny thing was there was a period of time in Seattle where there was always this talk, especially in you know I work for Geekwire, always this talk about IPOs and and these little IPOs companies are delicious. By the way, they're just a little bit they've a little bitterness, but a little a little <laughs> hint of lemon. Go ahead. And I was going to say that uh, <laughs> that the. The an IPO where, where these tech companies just like being created then sell themselves to Google or whomever. One of the fastest growing areas of companies establishing and then selling off was breweries in this area. Breweries were selling for enormous sums of money to larger. So I was not surprised. I was kind of pleased that they went to a rather small company right. to sell out, which I think was great. And it appears that they'll sort of preserve Mac and Jack's. It was kind, it's kind of one of the OGs as far as microbrews yep. in this area. Red, Red Hook. Mac and Jacks, they were around before a lot of other companies were. And in fact, if you look at Georgetown Brewing, which is a massive success, still owned by Manny and Roger, um, I think it was Manny who worked at Mac and Jacks many years ago and then founded his own brewery after that. So they really are sort of a seedbed for a lot of other brewers. So I'm happy that they're still staying relatively small. And uh, I'm happy that the owners, you know, you get to a place where you definitely want to retire. I think it's great. Right, right. Yeah, Seattle-owned uh, family business, Ackley Brands. Apparently, also, there's a zoning change near in Redmond, as a matter of fact, near Marymore Park that also might have – that and, and the lure of retirement might have spurred them on. Um, we have been uh, uh, saving water around here somewhat. You know, Seattle Public Utilities asked us to cut back. We uh, down from 150 million gallons. They want us to come down to 100 million gallons because it was such a dry summer. And even though we had that rain a few days ago, um, so and we we used 100 last last time I saw a couple of days ago 117 million gallons a day. So not quite down to 100, but not bad. But they want you to keep keep saving. Yeah, it just strikes me, you know, we have this reputation of being such a rainy place, but our summers are so dry here. And, you know, you've already got conflicts over development rights in areas, you know, very suburban areas. You know, it it, it strikes me that this will continue to limit, you know, limit growth in in those areas. And conflicts over water are in our future, even here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Lauren, you're not letting the water run while you wash your hands, right? (laughs) 
<laughs> I've stopped doing that. Of course I am. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Well, some balance in the universe. Um, Amazon, <laughs> right. Monica Nicholsberg uh, told us that Amazon is now tracking employee badge swipes to make sure you're returning to the office, which I didn't know they were, I didn't know they were not doing that earlier. Um, and we, we talked, uh, I think it was last week or two weeks ago, about that picture for the Houston Astros um, making a homophobic slur in Spanish against um, the Mariners' Julio Rodriguez and what was going to happen to him. We talked about what would, might, what would happen to him if it was soccer, et cetera. And uh, theathletic.com says he is not going to be suspended. He's just being fined uh, a so far undisclosed amount. And I would point out that this guy makes $8.5 million a year. So mm-hmm. uh, It'll be a penny. It'll be Yeah, that buys a lot of insults. Um, oh, and then last one, Megan Rapino, last uh, final home match with the OL ring. It's going to be a big, lots of tickets sold for that one. It's going to be a big one. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, okay, so since we since we got into sports, let's stay there for a moment because after the Mariners failed to make the playoffs, the team's catcher Cal Raleigh had some complaints, including that the team isn't spending enough money for great players. And after that, reporters asked a Mariners executive, should the team have opened its wallet and hired? star players, better players. And this executive, Jerry Depoto, essentially said, well, that's a risky short-term bet. You risk spending your money. Maybe you still don't win the World Series. Only one team does. And now you're so broke that you stink for years afterward. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Uh, Depoto said, no, it's better to marshal your money so maybe you're not great now, but you're good for a long time. If you go back and you look in a decade, those teams that win 54% of the time always wind up in the postseason, and they more often than not wind up in World Series. You know, so there's your, your bigger picture process. Nobody wants to hear the goal this year is we're going to win 54% of the time because sometimes 54% is, is some, one year you're going to win 60%, another year you're going to win 50%. You know, it's whatever it is, but over time, that type of mindset gets you there. If what you're doing is focusing year to year on what do we have to do to win the World Series this year, you might be one of the teams that's laying in the mud and can't get up for another decade. So we're actually doing the fan base a favor (laughs) and asking for their patience to win the World Series. (laughs) Mike, he was correct. Jerry was correct. That is not what some fans wanted to hear. But is he wrong? Well, so technically he's right. I mean, he's he's right in terms of his information. He, you know, if you look at teams over the course of a decade, the numbers. I mean, and everyone is very numbers focused. You know, the money ball sort of idea yeah. about how you assess success, and they've changed everything in the way they count success in baseball. And most of the times, in very smart, very good ways. And what everything he said was accurate. However, it was not necessarily well received by the fans because essentially he kind of poked fun at the fans for not knowing more, and the fans being like. There's a time to say this, and this is in a casual discussion a couple of months after the season, and you talk about what we're building for the future and blah, blah, blah. But when it's that raw and you miss the playoffs by one game, and there's and I'm not a big baseball fan. I grew up a Giants fan, and I'm, I root for the Mariners because I love seeing everyone in town lose their minds when local teams do well. Right. But saying this like the, on the right after a season that is considered by the fans a bit of a failure, even though the team was quite good and in the race up until the very almost the very last day of the season, it was it was as tone deaf as I've seen any sports executive 
uh, in the last 10 years. You it gave was, me a beautiful analogy. So the analogy I said is I said, think of it like this. If, if, if you were taking marriage vows and you were to say to the person you're facing across uh, the, the altar, uh, I am 54% likely to love and cherish you the rest of our lives. <laughs> Or till death or a fight over finances do us part, you are technically accurate on what either leads to success or failure in marriages, but it's hardly going to win you any prizes. And, and this is the problem is he picked an emotional moment to say a very clinical thing, and it wasn't smart. And now he's created this incredible meme about the 54 percenters. And I can see if, if they show up. If they show up next season and play and have fun with it and all the team is wearing the 54 percenters T-shirt – and make fun of themselves over it. I think that'd be a great idea because he kind of, he kind of. Everyone felt a little burned. Who's a big baseball fan felt a little burned by him. But then he also went on air on Cairo Radio and apologized profoundly. He said, "Look, I blew it. I, I the wrong tone, wrong things. I wasn't wrong in what I was saying, but I did not under. I did not appreciate the moment for what I should have said." Yeah, Lauren, you just laughed. It's just. <laughs> Sports fans have to be pacified yes. <laughs> so much. Yes. And I feel like the issue was he broke the fourth wall a little bit. They they didn't want to hear all that. Yeah. <laughs> they just wanted to hear you're going to do better next season. Exactly. exactly. Yeah. It's so simple. Yeah. I mean, if you show up late to an important event that your partner is doing and you and they get mad at you for showing up late and the first thing that you say is, but what about all the times I showed up on time? <laughs> it doesn't work. Yeah. 100% of the time, as a person who said that, it doesn't work 100% of the time. Right, 100%. You know, for, just for fun, I, you know, to have a, a different perspective on this, I, I looked at Amazon's core leadership principles and asked myself, <laughs> what would happen if we applied the? What would happen if the Mariners abided by those principles? And and you know, a couple of them support the Mariners' strategy. You know, frugality, for example, which is doing more with less, uh-huh. a, and a willingness to be misunderstood for long periods of time. You know, they got wow. that. They got that. But but the most commonly cited Amazon principle is customer obsession. You know, leaders start with a customer and work backwards they 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 have to earn customer trust and the mariners have definitely not earned the trust other com- other customers right but but then when i was thinking about that i was also realizing oh wait a second the ftc is suing amazon for its uh, anti competitive practices yeah. and and that helped me realize you know, with our sports teams, they've got this kind of monopoly over us. Yes. They're, and, they're cartels. Absolutely. In, yeah. They are. In our cities. And when they tell us, you know, this is the price of a of a microbrew, there's not a lot we can do about it. And when they tell us that it's time for us to be patient, you know, what are we going to do? Well, the funny thing is about sports. Can I just one quick point about sports ownership? Here's the funny thing about sports ownership is is a lot of the folks who own teams are relatively conservative people. That's across the board in every single sport because they're largely billionaires and billionaires mm-hmm. just tend to trend uh, conservative. And they are adamantly – these are the type of folks who are adamantly against like public health care, right? Mm-hmm. So they are, they are absolute capitalists except in their own world. If you look at the way sports are built – with, with the lowest teams drafting first, they're essentially socialist structures, right? right? And so they're socialists in their own environment where it benefits them. <laughs> yes. And then they're capitalists in everywhere else where it doesn't benefit, where it doesn't benefit us. Yeah. For those not, not in the know, socialist meaning they make it so that uh, there's turnover, that the, the last shall be first and the first shall they, be last eventually. They have revenue sharing. Yes. What, is, what right. else is go. not socialist but revenue sharing? Uh, that, 
I want is there a t- is there a team that I know the the aren't the Green Bay Packers supposedly like publicly owned or yes, something? Yes, the only team, but, and they don't allow that structure anymore. Because I wondered, would it be more satisfying? Because you pay your you buy your season tickets if you do, but you don't have a say in how much money your team spends on players. I wonder if that could there could be a model where your <laughs> charter as a no. team, your charter is you have to spend you have to match the other team's payroll or you have to spend a, a minimum amount. Wouldn't that be more satisfying for fans? But it's not about fans don't get a vote. Oh. I mean the only way fans can vote, I would argue, and this is what fans should do, if you're unhappy with the product, do not show up. Yeah. That's the one thing that'll get everyone's. Well attention. that happens. If the Mariners stink, watch watch what happens in the stands. Yeah. Exactly. So I wonder in a city like Chicago where they have two teams, you know, if there's uh-huh. if there's more competition for no, fans. No, 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 no. And it's not like someone who is a Cubs fan is then going to become a White Sox fan or back. back. That doesn't. Yeah, these that are doesn't, tribes. These are tribes. That's that not going to happen. Lauren, I'm with you. I'm just sports. like, Mike said boycott the Mariners. <laughs> I didn't say boycott. His tweet, me acting like that. Jerry DePoto and <laughs> saying the wrong that, thing. Lauren, tweet it out. <laughs> um, exit. Okay, last last item before we, we give you something to smile about. The Seattle Times ran a piece this week for newcomers to Seattle, how to live here, a list of basically things you should own and occasionally not own. So I'm going to run through quickly. Uh, I'll get your ideas at the end. But if you own this thing, just say yes. Uh, Sunlamp slash light therapy box. No. No. Nobody. No. Waterproof clothes. Yeah. Everybody. Yeah. Right. Yes? yes? No? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Umbrella. Yeah. I own one. Yeah, but... But no golf umbrellas, okay. no big umbrellas, because it's they're a hazard on a sidewalk. All right, Fair two enough. and a half yeses. Uh, that that was a, by the way on the list. It was something that you should not. If you're coming to Seattle, if you're a newcomer, oh, do if not you umbrella. use umbrellas or not. That yeah. that's another tribal thing. That's a tribal <laughs> thing. Yeah, but I don't. I think that it was a trope when I got here. I don't think it's true anymore. I see umbrellas everywhere now, way more than I did 23 years ago. When oh, I, wait, I carry wait, wait, wait. one. Are you telling me that there's a subset of people in this city that pride themselves on not using an umbrella? Yes, yes. absolutely. Okay. And it's mostly people who've been here for a long time and they talk about Seattle. You have a hood, you don't have an umbrella. <laughs> it's been this trope in Seattle. It doesn't really, I don't think it proves true anymore, but okay. I've absolutely heard that. Uh, dehumidifier. No. Mm-mm. Nobody. Except if you live in a houseboat. Good point. <laughs> Moisture absorber like damp rid. Do you know what that is? That's just a dehumidifier in chemical form. In a chemical form. It's like a chloride. Oh, it's the D, the stuff they put in to absorb the moisture. Yeah. Uh, but nobody has it? I don't use this. I didn't. I, I don't know how I missed this. I mean, I know what that stuff is, the chloride <laughs> stuff. But and, it, and, and I read about it. It's like, you know, it's an irritant. You shouldn't, you shouldn't eat it. You shouldn't all that. But it's supposedly natural in, or environmentally safe. <laughs> but there, I found this video online telling me that how it works. It absorbs the water and the water sinks down and then and then and then this is part three of the process when the moisture absorbing formula has fully dissolved and the bottom chamber is filled with liquid pour the liquid into the toilet and flush be sure to raise the seat before pouring <laughs> be sure to raise the seat before pouring thanks Dan Brid. okay uh prepaid orca card who has one Oh, I yeah. Do, yeah. We get them through work. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's yeah. right. I've got uh, use it all the time. You pass every day. Uh, reusable shopping bags, mugs, packable straws, eating utensils. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though I forget them all of the, all the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Discover Pass. Yeah. Yep. No. Nope. Uh, I would also take Northwest Forest Pass. Uh, Washington Trail Association's Trailblazer app. Oh, yeah, I use that. Well, I use a couple different trail apps. Okay. Yeah, that's a good one. I haven't gotten into hiking yet. I need to. Oh, come on. Let's go. Uh, REI membership, Lauren? Probably not. No, not yet. 
All right, Frisbee or pickleball set? <laughs> Frisbee, but rest in peace to my dog. I won't be using it. Oh, <laughs> never again? Maybe one day. Oh, Lauren. Okay, I do have a pickleball set. Um, vitamin D. No. In what no. form? Like supplements? Yeah, supplements. Because no. we don't get enough sunlight. That's oh, the whole, yeah. yeah. Somebody yeah. told me about that. Right. You know, if you wear weatherproof clothes and if you got weatherproof boots and you go out and walk in the middle of the day, it helps with a lot of that stuff. You know, less likely to get seasonal affective disorder. Hmm. You know, maybe you can. So, but isn't that, just to push back on that, wasn't that found to not actually exist? Like the actual studies on seasonal affective disorder that they could not find a correlation between places like Seattle that are typically very cloudy and some sort of additional emotional response to that? Well, I ignore every single study. I only pay attention to large aggregates of studies. Well, fair so, enough. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Yeah. Anything you that should have been on this list for a n- Seattle newcomer listening to you? Um, I just like to carry snacks and water bottles because I find a lot of homeless people ask me for water more than money. Right. Hmm. So, yeah. Carry water and give it out. I'd say a couple of things. One, that I, I adopted. You have to adopt the Alaska motto. The Alaska motto is: "There's no bad weather, just bad gear." Right. So, if you are going to make decisions about staying inside and not doing stuff when it's raining, you're going to spend a lot of time inside. I would say the second thing um, is if you moved here from a western state south of Washington. Let's just say you moved here from California or Arizona or New Mexico. Me. Lauren, you have to, you are obligated. It might even be in the city charter. You are obligated to complain about the quality of Mexican food in in Seattle. I've done it so many times. And and I actually worked in Sacramento for for the Sacramento Bee for a long time. But I found some good Mexican food. Well, see, and that's, but even even your expression, though, is like the shock of actually finding good, (laughs) because, because that's what you do if you're from somewhere else, particularly south of here. You have to complain about the quality of Mexican food. Okay, we have like a minute left. You want to tell us where are you going to keep your Mexican secret? Um, Montezuma, South Center, Fogon, um, which is kind of near First Hill, Capitol Hill. Wow. Amazing. Both love those places. All right, I'm writing those down. Joshua, anything to add or delete from that list? Uh, Hot sauce, because it makes you feel warm when it's cold outside. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> just true. drop it on your tongue. Like when uh, I thought it was when it it's, it I thought food. it makes you feel cool when it's hot because it makes you sweat. Well, but uh, either way, it's like a geothermal plant. It does both. <laughs> exactly. I haven't seen the studies on that, but uh-huh. that's how it makes me feel good in the good in the winter. Okay, we got to go. Is anything anything to leave our listeners with uh, that's smile worthy? I was like to. Did anything make you smile this week? I took my son to college in Bellingham, and uh-huh. so the city of Bellingham is making me smile with its. You know, brilliant uh, Colson Trackside outdoor brewery where they've got a BMX track right next to an outdoor brewery. It's Ooh. open through the end of the month. Wow. Lovely. I didn't know about that. It's super cool. Like a pop-up? It's, oh, it's only it's, open? It's like shipping container restaurants and then all these picnic tables and stuff. It's the coolest thing ever. Right in the old Georgia Pacific plant area. Yeah, I know exactly Groovy. what you're talking about. Yeah. Anything else? Or do we cover it? We made history this week. We have no speaker of the house. (laughs) No, yeah. (laughs) Crazy. That made you smile? (laughs) It did. (laughs) And that's a drama. If if you like that whole story, you you can, like, who knows what's going to happen now? Who knows? Trump endorsed Jim Jordan. I know that. I like anarchy a little bit sometimes. A little bit. (laughs) Okay, well, we got to go. I like that you come uh, every week and enlighten us and explain to us and just kind of we're here together every Friday. Thank you, Lauren Bray, South Seattle Emerald. Thanks. Thanks for having me. KUOW's Growth and Development Reporter. Thank you, Joshua McNichols. No problem. GeekWire Contributing Editor. Always good to see you, Mike Lewis. Thanks for coming.
Glad to be here, as always. Sure glad that uh, KUOW's Kevin Kniestet produces this show and Guy Nelson in running the board, as we say this week. And we're out of time. I hope you'll join us again a week from today on Week in Review. I'm Bill Radke. Thank you.